I'm Candace Lim, and you're listening to ICYMI. In case you missed it, Slate's podcast about internet culture. And today, we have another special treat because we are bringing you an episode from Slate's Outward podcast. In this episode, the Outward hosts break down the million dollar takeover ad on X for Prager University's documentary, Detrans The Dangers of Gender Affirming Care. NBC reporter Joe Yurkaba joins to tackle the misdirections and anti-trans agenda of the documentary and take a look at the transphobic shifts on the social media platform. And without further ado, here's the show. Hey, everybody, and welcome to Outward, a slate show about everything LGBTQ and the infinite, all-encompassing plus. I want to live in the plus. I'm Brian Lauder, an editor at Slate. I'm Jules Gill-Peterson, very plus. <laughs> and I'm Christina Cotarucci, a senior writer at Slate. Hey, everybody. So I am a devoted and longtime committed, committed member of Camp Never Tweet. Uh, because I think it only brings torment and pain and annoying DMs. True, true. But my understanding is that, unfortunately, on this episode, we're going to have to wade into the swampy waters of X to talk about something else gross that recently happened there. Um, Jules, do you want to explain that to us? Yeah, it's true, Brian. I'm sorry. I mean, I, I too deleted my X account a while back. So I didn't personally wow. have to experience the thing we're going to talk about. But listeners have maybe heard or if you're on the website that a few weeks ago, the platform was taken over by an ad blitz for a Prager U film about detransitioners. <laughs> um, you know, PragerU, as we'll probably get into, is not a university, but it is a high-budget right-wing content creator, probably most famous for its really weird YouTube videos. So ex-users saw ads for this ridiculous anti-trans, like, agitprop film all over the app because Prager bought a takeover ad on the platform. So there's a lot to unpack here, and we invited the fantastic NBC journalist Joe Yerkeba, who wrote an article about the D-trans takeover to chat with us about everything that went down, but also Elon Musk's ongoing conversion of Twitter into whatever X is supposed to be, and kind of how anti-trans disinformation has become so ubiquitous online. So we'll be talking with Joe right after this break. Talking with Joe Yerkeba about the detransition drama over on X, formerly known as Twitter. Uh, Joe, thanks so much for coming on Outward. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. Um, so, so for those of us who are uh, blissfully no longer a part of this website, <laughs> but of course we all live in the shadow of what goes on <laughs> on X. Um, can you just kind of catch us up on the kind of mechanics here? Like what exactly happened so that everyone, when they logged into Twitter, all of a sudden was just being bombarded with the word detransition, which is the only way I know how to say it. <laughs> uh, the Prager University Foundation, which is actually a conservative advocacy group um, and not a university, contrary to the name, um, bought what's called a 
takeover ad on X. And this was part of a larger $1 million marketing campaign that they did. We reached out to X to ask exactly how much Prager you spent just mm. on the ads on X, but they wouldn't tell us um, how much it was. So the takeover ad placement basically meant that the ad for D-Trans, the dangers of gender affirming care, that's the name of their documentary, was the first one displayed when most users on the social media platform like opened their page. Mm-hmm. And the hashtag D-Trans in all caps was prominently displayed um, and you couldn't really remove it from the promoted hashtags on the right side. So it was a very prominent ad. And I saw you know comments from people on X who were noting that even if they tried to mute the hashtag, mm. they were still seeing it um, in their feeds. So intrusive. Ugh. Yeah. I mean, I hesitate to, you know, even give this much legitimacy to this film, although it was interesting to read in your article that it has, among other things, been rejected from film festivals right. and actually has had trouble buying ads elsewhere. I mean, could you tell us just a little bit about that? Like, what what is this ostensible documentary and, and why is it having so much trouble that it had to take over X to get any press? Sure, yeah. So PragerU um, actually claimed that YouTube completely rejected it um, and wouldn't allow its placement. Mm. But we reached out to YouTube and they said that in reality, they did accept the ad, but they wouldn't give it the kind of prominent placement that X would. So it still got placement across the platform, but in a much less prominent sort of part of the site. Joe, just so nobody else has to watch this film, (laughs) can you just give us a like elevator pitch of what the heck is going on with it? So yeah, Prager used documentary. Um, it's 21 minutes and it focuses on two people who have detransitioned. Um, and though both of them began transitioning as adults, their stories are part of the film's larger criticism of access to transition related care for minors. Um, and so the two people it features are Daisy Strongin, who was 18 when she began testosterone, though the film doesn't disclose this and it shows videos and images of her when she looks younger. And then Abel Garcia, the other main character who says, in the film that he was 19 when he began medical transition. The documentary does describe other cases of people who began transition as minors. For example, Layla Jane, who's um, suing Kaiser Permanente right now. Um, and so it kind of, it uses those two main stories, though, of these people who access transition as adults to make this larger criticism of gender-affirming care for minors and kind of leaves out a lot of information that people might want to know to have a more full picture of what the issue actually looks like. And so there, it seems like there are places still accepting its advertisements, but film festivals, they've said, have outright rejected it. And I can't say for sure why that is. I can kind of speculate and say that it is likely because the information in the documentary is relatively one-sided, doesn't give you the full picture. And it also is a bit misleading. You know, the two main people in the documentary tell their stories about detransitioning. And part of the doc's larger criticism of access to gender affirming care for minors, even though both of the two people that the doc features, they began their medical transition as adults. Classic. Um, and that is only disclosed for one of the people. Um, the other person, they don't ever mention it, despite showing very young images of her. Could you actually back up a little bit and explain why that presentation tactic in the film is so sketchy, the sort of confusion about what age these people are and and how that plays into the larger D-trans sort of mythos that's being drawn on here? 
Sure, yeah. So this is actually something that we see not just within this documentary, but nationwide. If you watch any of the the House hearings in state houses across the country regarding restrictions on transition-related care for minors, often the same people um, will be flown Mm. in to tell their detransition stories. And the majority of those, except for one, um, I believe it's Chloe Cole, uh, have all began their medical transition as adults or when they were 18, 19. Um, And so it's, it's sort of a prominent tactic that you see um, really often when someone's advocating for these kinds of restrictions is they say, you know, these people were very young and they don't disclose that they actually were adults. So we're seeing that similar tactic here in the PragerU documentary where they show photos of people um, specifically one of the main people in their doc looking very young, but they don't actually disclose to you that she was 18 and 19 when she began her medical transition. They do disclose it for the other person, but it it is sort of representative of this larger theme that we see um, in advocacy for these restrictions. One thing that I I think is particularly disingenuous about the, not just this film, but the sort of obsession with detransitioners. Did I do that right, Jules? Totally. In general, is the the argument is basically that these few cases of people being upset with what they did should be used to invalidate or make inaccessible care for everyone who actually wants that care. But it's actually quite a small number of people who end up regretting that their medical transition. What does the sort of research say about that part of it? In my article, I note that there's one 2021 review of 27 studies that evaluated rates of regret among people 13 and older who received gender-affirming surgery, and it found that an average of 1% experienced regret. Um, and there have been a variety of other studies um, that find between like 1% and 8%. The highest that I could find was a study that estimated 25%. But if you compare that, for example, to rates of regret for um, cosmetic surgery, it's about a uh, half to two-thirds less. So it's still relatively low. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it, and yet the obsession with detransitioners almost feels like it's growing. But I wonder if it's just that it feels like it's growing to me because now I've seen it. You know, when I logged on to X that day, mm-hmm. it was, like you said, sort of all over the page. I was like, oh, is everyone tweeting about this? Until I realized it was a promoted thing. I mean, do you think we're just sort of seeing more of what the like anti-trans right is doing because there's now a mainstream social media platform willing to give it full access and credence? Or or do you have a sense that it's actually kind of building in prominence? Mm. I I think it's both. Um, I think that, you know, we've seen a focus on detransition stories for a while now. Um, I believe 60 Minutes did a whole segment on it. Um, and, and it's been featured in major magazines. Um, so this has been kind of anytime you talk about trans people, um, most people at mainstream media want to focus on detransition stories because they're like, Oh, this is so fascinating and interesting. Mm-hmm. Um, without the necessary context that it's, you know, pretty rare. But I do think it's also because Elon Musk, when he purchased Twitter, now X, you know, describes himself as a free speech absolutist and had this history of sharing anti-trans videos. For example, Matt Walsh's What is a Woman? And so was really open to, you know, giving these ideas more space on the platform, in addition to, you know, making actual policy changes, such as getting rid of the ban on misgendering and deadnaming for trans people. 
Yeah, yeah. I wanted to to talk a little bit about this larger context, you know, about the changes, not just in name that have come since Elon Musk took the reins. I mean, like, full disclosure, the reason I left that website is that, you know, it had gotten to the point where just the extreme amount of violent harassment mm-hmm. uh, that I would receive anytime I did anything was just becoming so intolerable. And just like, so it appeared to me, right, at the level of the interface, like structurally embedded in my user wow. experience that I just like could not find. I mean, sure, it's upsetting, but also just like it becomes unusable to me as mm-hmm. a public, you know, trans woman. It's easy to just sort of then, you know, brush Musk away and be like, it's all just, you know, that one weird guy. Um, but there are specific actual decisions, right? Policy changes. You just mentioned a few, but from what we can tell, right? I mean, this seems like transparency about not obviously not just algorithms, but actually internal processes, you know, at X have been the subject of a lot of investigation, and a lot of difficulty to find answers. Uh, a lot of people have been fired or left the place. But what are some of the events that have actually maybe led up to and give us a better context for this takeover ad? Like how has Twitter in becoming X materially changed in terms mm. of, of how it handles, you know, trans and gender diverse content, but also in in what we can tell just actual policy decisions that that came from Musk. Yeah. So one of the big things that I think has affected safety for people on the platform is there were two teams who kind of moderated content and both of those teams were basically gutted. Mm -hmm. Um, And so that has sort of made it very hard for them to keep up with reporting, but also made it so that even when you do report people that you're reporting to like are overwhelmed and also there are fewer policies that, you know, protect LGBTQ users. So that's really allowed for like a prolific of hate. Myself and a colleague actually did a story about the one-year anniversary of Elon Musk purchasing X and what it's become like for LGBTQ people. And a lot of people said, you know, just like you were saying, that they had to leave because it got so bad they were getting death threats um, and they would report it and nothing would happen. Um, And so it sort of pushed them off the platform. Um, But we've also seen, you know, for example, in June, X's chief of trust and safety resigned because Musk publicly undermined her decision to moderate the spread of an anti-trans video that was what is a woman. And so it's been sort of this like cascading effect that's really created the climate on the platform. Elon Musk is not really profiting from his decision to purchase X. He spent a bunch of money on it. Now he's driving it into the ground. It really does feel like he is just using his billions of dollars to force this like anti-trans worldview on a bunch of people who were just trying to use the platform for other purposes. And it just seems to me like uh, an example of how you know, our lives revolve around the internet. And for a lot of journalists, like revolved around Twitter, it was an extremely useful tool, both for promoting our work and for (laughs) getting information and finding sources and stuff. And it feels like he's almost killing two burns with one stone here, where he's ruining sort of an avenue that was 
ostensibly somewhat supporting democracy and also forcing this transphobic worldview on people by his own promotion of this content and allowing it to purchase a takeover of the whole site. Yeah, I would also add, um, and maybe I've buried the lead a bit here, but so after my article came out, I actually had a conversation with an executive at X. He kept asking me, you know, we don't understand why people think this is anti-trans. Like it's not, there's nothing explicitly anti-trans in it. And I said, well, here is the context that, you know, more than 20 states have restricted this care in some way, that we're seeing higher rates of suicide attempts and poor mental health and youth. And eventually I said, you know, and I think that the criticism that I'm hearing from people is given that context, is it ethical for a platform as large as X to run an ad like this? Mm. And he said, we think that isn't for Mm -hmm. us to decide. And I thought that sort of said so much that it seems like, well, it seems like one, they aren't aware of the larger context that this Mm. is appearing in. And even if they are, when they're informed of it, they don't think that they have an ethical obligation or that they are responsible for the effects of something like an ad like this or a documentary like this. That's sort of been the refrain of all social media platforms like Facebook trying to shirk responsibility for having election-related misinformation or um, foreign entities trying to interfere in our democracy or like the genocide in Myanmar, it's like so convenient for them to say, we're not publishers of this content. We're simply Mm -hmm. allowing other people to put whatever they want here. So therefore we have no responsibility for what it does. Right. Yeah. And I I did follow up afterward and asked, you know, so where does X draw the line? For example, could the Proud Boys purchase Mm. a takeover ad and, you know, publish a documentary that they think is really important and shows, you know, one side of an issue? Um, And we didn't receive Mm. a response to that. It strikes me that there's like an interesting, um, I don't know, like resonance between the whole mood of Elon Musk's X being about removing censorship and allowing, you know, oppressed <laughs> voices to speak. This idea that's embedded in this detrans sort of narrative that some people are being censored and ostracized. This was in a quote that you got, I think, from one of the Prager representatives about emotions motivating the documentary. Can you explain a little bit where that line of argument is coming from. Um, I read and edit a lot of queer content, so I sort of understand that it's not true, but I'm curious about why do you think they feel censored and ostracized? Yeah, that was um, Craig Straziri, um, PragerU's chief marketing officer, who said that he thinks people should hear the stories of detransitioners. And that was actually also what the executive at X told me when we had this mm. um, conversation after right. the article published. Um, and he kept saying, you know, why shouldn't people, why shouldn't they be able to h- share their stories too? Um, and I said, they absolutely should. And they are, um, for the last decade or so, some of the only people yeah. who have really <laughs> been able to in mainstream media. We've only really heard the voices of detransitioners in prominent. Right magazines. So I think that there's, yeah, definitely this idea that their voices aren't being heard. Um, And I'm unclear why that's still persisting, because there has been such a focus Mm -hmm. on it. Like I said, 60 Minutes covered it. I think that it's really just this fascination. And I saw in a conversation online somewhere where someone said that, you know, people have a fascination with this idea of like, you made a life-changing decision Mm -hmm. for your body, and then you like Mm -hmm. later regret it. Um, And so cisgender people find that really fascinating and dark and horrifying. 
Um, so there's kind of this obsession with it. Yeah. Um, and it's very hard to get people to understand that the overwhelming majority of trans people don't have that experience and in reality are right, you know much the, happier after transition. Um, so yeah, I'm, I'm sort of at a loss for why there's, I, there's still such a focus. And I think part of it is just because there's so much funding behind the groups that are supporting these stories and flying people to testify at hearings. And so there's still a really over too much of a focus on it. Yeah, that that part seems really interesting, right? It's also a political strategy, just a right wing political strategy that goes way beyond this particular form of like, cultural politics, right? The idea that dominant <laughs> groups in society are actually, mm -hmm. in reality, the oppressed, censored ones, because something, something kind of paranoid view of like liberal media, right? It seems mm -hmm. like maybe part and parcel of some of the larger political mm, dynamics at play in, in Musk's sort of strategy, right? In buying Twitter in the first place, um, but also goes much further. We can think about just the broader right-wing media ecosystem. I mean, it makes me want to ask you a little bit more about PragerU, because I feel like that this might be one of these entities, these names that folks have heard of, maybe even seen made fun of on like a comedy show or something. But I think it might help us drill down a little bit here because, you know, one of the interesting things from my perspective or one of the frustrating things from my perspective about their showing up with this narrative of like, well, we, we need to let these detransitioners tell their stories. I mean, that already is a kind of corruption and revision of what the word detransitioner even meant in trans community, <laughs> like for a long time. Detransitioner is not like this scary gotcha word um, that trans people live in fear of because it secretly pulls the rug out from under us. Actually, detransition is like a way to describe something that a lot of trans people are often forced to go through when they lose mm -hmm. access mm -hmm. to hormones in particular. They're forcibly detransitioned. It's just a vernacular term. So states are doing right? now. Or, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, what states are doing or just like because it's so hard to live in the world as a trans person, you lose your health insurance. Mm -hmm. You run out of money for co-pays back. You know, like, wasn't that long ago that no insurance covered any gender-affirming care? People were always paying out of pocket. But also, like, detransition often meant because you face such incredible hostility, rejection, sometimes criminalization for having transition, that some people decided, I am trans, but I cannot mm -hmm. live in the world having transition. It is impossible. And so I'm detransitioning. I am not you know, giving up being trans, right? Detransition does not mean detransgender, right? So interesting then that, so Prager, you can show up and be like this hidden story no one is ever talking about um, by also trying to take this term that already had a pre-existing circulation inside a community, dress it up for the public and completely change its context. Uh, that's me editorializing as someone who researches this stuff. But I, I really do find Prager, you kind of interesting, right? Like we've already sort of said multiple times, not a university. So yeah. what's up with that? Um, and I think Prager U is most known or originally was known for its YouTube content, but it seems to be kind of shifting into this new phase because it's well-funded, because it has mm -hmm. a lot of um, production infrastructure, where I'm seeing its name pop up a lot around kind of like um, alternative curriculum in red states that are, you know, going all in on the politics of parental choice and quote unquote school choice. So dissolving public education for voucher systems and private kind of schemes, we're seeing PragerU pop up as providing like alternative curricular, um, you know, materials and stuff. So, so anyways, I just threw a lot on the table, but Joe, could you just give us a sense of like, 
if if we if you wanted to sort of explain to people like what is this Prager U? Like who's the Prager? Why is it not a U? What have they been up to? Um, <laughs> and, and maybe what are they kind of getting into right now? Before you do that, I just want to sure. quickly flag. Uh, we'll put this on the show page, but Slate had a great piece by our Molly Olmstead about the uh, alternative curriculum stuff that you're talking oh, about. Jules. Right. So yeah, we'll put that. We'll put it on the show page so people can read more about it in detail. But Joe, go ahead. Sorry. Prager U is, um, like we've mentioned, not a university, a conservative media advocacy group. And really what they do is create, you know, media short documentaries like this to kind of show people one specific side of an issue. Mm. And so I think that this documentary is really representative of that in that like they don't usually include actual doctors or experts in the field. So for example, the one person that they include in D-Trans is Lior Sapir, and I might be mispronouncing oh. his name, but it lists him as a PhD and doesn't actually disclose that he has a PhD in political uh, science. Right. Um, <laughs> and so not anything related to medicine, even though he's talking about, um, you know, the marriage or lack thereof of gender-affirming care for minors. And so I think that that kind of is representative of their approach to issues as they mostly, you know, show people in their media who are experts in politics of some kind and who also are employed by a conservative advocacy group and they don't disclose that information. So it's sort of not only, you know, shows you one side of an issue, but it also isn't telling you all of the details. And that sort of seems to be their their general approach. Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, it feels like these sorts of situations where on the one hand, it's like, okay, someone bought an ad, right? Like, hmm, that's not new. <laughs> um, we, You know, the fact that um, social media are actually owned by private companies and aren't actually public entities that are regulated in the same way that the public sphere is regulated feels very much, though, like a kind of, you know, looming challenge, also political battle that's shaking down right now. There's a lot of conversation in Washington about whether and how the federal government might regulate social media, whether the Biden administration is moving towards breaking up some of the large tech companies. I mean, just sort of in this larger context, Joe, what do you think we could sort of take away from from this example of X having gone all in on D-trans? Is this kind of a, a sign of the times and also you know, is it something that users are sort of kind of just doomed to accept or walk away from? Or is there a kind of larger conversation already underway about uh, how the kind of impact and the the obvious sort of public utility of social media hasn't quite matched up with either how it's regulated under the law or how the, the companies themselves function? Yeah. So I think that this was a question that I asked um, Alejandra Carvalho mm-hmm. at Harvard. She's a, a cyber law professor. I asked her, you know, do you think that this could affect the coming election? Mm-hmm. And she was like, I mean, potentially, but I think that in leaning so hard into his own views and specifically anti-trans views, which, you know, publicly in polls have shown not to be very popular, Elon Musk is sort of taking away the influence that Mm -hmm. X, formerly Twitter, had, which I thought was really interesting. When we see things like the PragerU documentary, sometimes I hear, you know, advocates for rightly, you know, for good reasons because of the legislative climate, get, you know, very afraid of sort of what the future looks like and the spread of disinformation. But I think it's also that perspective from Alejandro was really helpful to kind of show that in leaning into these views that are actually extreme and not held by a majority, um, a platform can kind of undermine its own credibility. Um, And so I think that that is really helpful, but also, you know, good to keep in mind as this larger conversation about the role that uh, social media is playing is 
that, you know, I think that we're going to have to keep coming back to this question of like, what ethical responsibility do these platforms have? And X has kind of given us their response, which is none. Mm. Um, And I think that sort of it would be up to users to kind of determine, you know, how do you feel about that? Do you want to stay on the platform or go to a place that feels differently Mm. about that? Right. So from, you know, drama of the week to actually something for <laughs> us to, to keep thinking about and, and holding in, in our minds as, as we see how, uh, you know, the, the struggle over the role of social media in politics and disinformation continues to play out. Well, Joe, your are Thank you so much for, for coming on the show to talk to us about all of this. Of course. Thank you for having me. That is the end of the show for this week. Please send us feedback and topic ideas at outwardpodcast at slate.com or via Facebook or on X, I guess, if you want to, uh, at Slate Outward. And just a reminder that by joining Slate Plus, you will get ad-free podcasts, extra segments on shows like The Waves and Working, and you'll never hit a paywall on the Slate site. To learn more about that opportunity, go to slate.com slash outwardplus. Our show has been produced by Palace Shaw. If you like Outward, please subscribe in your podcast app. Tell your friends and family about it. It's holidays. Go home. Tell them. Make them listen. Uh, and then make them rate and review the show, too, so others can find and join us uh, on the fun. Until next time, bye, Jules. Bye, Brian. See you, Christina. Bye. Stay gay, everybody. Bye.